Henry Xu is Professor Emeritus of Politics and International Relations. He is the author of Basic Rights, as well as The Pivotal Generation, Why We Have a Moral Responsibility to Slow Climate Change Right Now, among many other publications. In 1976, he co-founded the Institute for Philosophy and Public Policy at the University of Maryland. Xu was a supporter of the successful campaign by Virginia's Augusta County Alliance to stop the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, and now works primarily on explanations for the urgency of far more ambitious policies to eliminate fossil fuels in order to avoid irreversible damage for future generations. In this interview with Professor Henry Xu, we discuss the future of our planet, the responsibility we as individuals, politicians, and a society owe to our planet, as well as what this means for the youth and the development of nuclear power and its implications on the war in Ukraine. Professor Henry Xu, welcome to the One Planet podcast. Delighted to be here. So you've selected a brief passage from The Pivotal Generation. Could you just set it up, the passage you're going to share with us? It's a passage about the continuity between past, present, and future, in spite of the fact that we treat them as if they're in different categories. Chapters to come will explore more fully some of the deep continuities inherent in climate change. But one obvious fact is the enormously long lead time built into some of the causal connections within climate. Carbon emissions injected into the atmosphere in a given year can contribute to forcing sea level rise in not merely later centuries, but later millennia, dozens of centuries after the source of those emissions has disappeared from the earth. Some carbon emissions released early in the Industrial Revolution are yet to have their full effect, which still lies in the future. Present and future emissions matter as much as they do, only because of past emissions and their long-lasting effects stretching far beyond the date of their release and on through the present into the future. These long-lived connections provide a radically different example of the insight from one of the characters created by my fellow Southerner, William Faulkner, quote, the past is never dead, it's not even past, end quote. And similarly, long chains reach from the present into the future. Conventionally, we tend to think that the future is yet to be born or is even only just beginning to be conceived. But the climate future was already beginning to take shape when humans started centuries ago to inject more carbon into the atmosphere than the usual climate dynamics could handle in the usual way. And so climate parameters were forced to start changing. The vast and accelerating carbon emissions of the late 20th century and the early 21st century are building minimum floors under the extent of climate change in future centuries. Timothy Mitchell has written, quote, the modes of common life that have arisen largely within the last 100 years and whose intensity has accelerated only since 1945 are shaping the planet for the next 1,000 years and perhaps the next 50,000, end quote. The future is not inaccessible. We hold its fundamental parameters in our hands and we're shaping them now. In this respect, the future is not unborn, it's not even future. The reach of the present, what we who are alive can set into motion, extends far across time for good as well as evil. In some cases, climate change is one. Our reach will be long and deep, millennial and profound, whether we wish it or not, 
and we can make its outcomes good or, at worst, far better than they would have been had we continued as we are headed now. It's really amazing to think that our few generations can have such long shadows into the future. Just to think about how that has changed within a matter of a century, two centuries. Over the past three decades, as a political philosopher, you've kept justice at the center of the struggle to stop climate change and expressed action, prompting ways on how we should approach the climate challenge and avoid leaving an uninhabitable world behind, as you discuss. And your book came out last year. Why is this generation the pivotal generation? Well, it's because of the situation we face. We can tell from the science that. We have to reach zero carbon emissions by 2050. And common sense tells you that bringing them down for the second 50% is going to be harder than the first 50%. So we have to take care of the first 50% by about 2030. And it's 2023 already. We literally must, if we're going to keep climate change from becoming even more dangerous than it is, to a very great deal in the next seven or eight years and a huge amount between now and 2050. So it's not that this problem is the most important of all possible problems. There are other problems like, say, preventing nuclear war. But this is a problem that either we get a grip on it now or there's a real possibility that it will escape from our control. And with the rapid adaptation that needs to take place across so many sectors, the large scale across not just our individual countries, but the world acting in tandem and finally agreeing upon governance and certain principles and meeting those obligations, what is the role of the philosopher in these political and social movements? One thing we can do and which I've tried to do is spell out the ways in which this is a ethical or moral problem. The people don't need philosophers to tell them that they're facing problems. I first became interested in this problem by talking to delegates from India who said, you people in the rich countries keep saying, we have a problem. And our question is, who is we? You industrialized, and it's mainly the greenhouse gas from your industrialization that's created climate change. We haven't done that much industrialization yet. This was 25 years ago. Of course, now India is beginning to industrialize. But their point then was, and it's still largely true, that a lot of the problems are going to hit countries that haven't caused climate change. And so this strikes people just intuitively as unfair. What a philosopher like me can do is just spell out exactly why it is unfair. I think they're right. It is unfair if one person causes a problem and then someone else has to deal with it. That makes it as if the one who's dealing with it is the slave of the one who caused the problem. I make a mess and then you have to clean it up. That's as if you work for me. And that's really incompatible with equal respect for all human beings. And that's the sort of thing philosophers can spell out. And there are now a lot of good philosophical work being done spelling these things out. Exactly. It's really important to also outline basic emissions that are subsistency emissions and they're luxury emissions and they're things that we can do without. And they're people who have sacrificed for generations and are just coming into having access to kind of energy on demand like we have. Yes. This distinction between subsistence emissions and luxury emissions was 
made me my main contribution to these debates. And it's right. It's recently been calculated that the richest 1% of people in the world produce more emissions than the bottom 50%, a whole lot more. And a lot of these emissions by those of us who are in the richest 1%, and I'm probably one of those people, a lot of our emissions are from things we don't really need to do. We don't need to constantly fly for our vacations. We can walk in natural places near where we live, or at worst, we can drive aways in an electric car and so on. This, of course, means changing some of the things that we take for granted. And by noticing how great the emissions that they cause are and doing something to reduce our emissions. And it's about setting priorities, of course, because it's not going to be a smooth path. The transition, as you point out, climate change is happening. It's just a question of time. Hopefully we don't hit the major tipping points, but we are hitting certain tipping points, whether it's biodiversity and climate and there's fires. I can't even believe it just to think that there are fires in the Arctic, the permafrost mm. on fire. So how do we identify the most essential things that need to be changed? We can't do it all. And luckily, there's some new technologies we're all very hopeful about to solve some of these energy gaps. But how do you identify those priorities? And then exactly who should get the pass in terms of emissions going forward? Yes. And of course, it's a philosopher is not the one who should decide on the technologies. And luckily, a lot of entrepreneurs and small business people are really throwing themselves into the project of coming up with alternative energy. The main problem is the fossil fuel people are pretending that they're trying to help with the transition, but they're not really doing it. For example, an oil company will say, our business used to be 95% fossil fuel. Now it's only 90. Why is it only 90? Well, they sold 5% of their fossil fuel reserves to some private equity company, but the drilling is still going on. The fossil fuel is still coming out. It's just off the books of the company that sold it, and it's now on the books of somebody else. And there's a lot of this trickery going on on the part of the fossil fuel people. So we have, on the one hand, a lot of businesses and entrepreneurs who are really throwing themselves into producing alternative energy, but we have the fossil fuel people who are really trying to pull the wool over our eyes and pretend they're helping while just carrying on business as usual. Exactly. As you also pointed out in the pivotal generation, so many of those major fossil fuel companies are state-owned. So this idea that, oh, we have to wait for industry to advance will often it's owned by the state or definitely the state can write the legislation that those corporations adhere to, hopefully. I don't even like to think to the way the next COP conference, we've seen the hypocrisy with the greenwashing. So now the number of fossil fuel lobbyists outnumbering others involved. It's very important. Obviously, the COP conference yeah. is We've seen a lot of hypocrisy there too, Coca-Cola sponsoring this most recent one. Right. It's your point about the biggest companies being state-owned is important and is one of the difficult things. I mean, the biggest oil company in the world is Aramco, Saudi Arabia's Aramco. So Western investor-owned companies are a part of the problem, but companies like Saudi Aramco or Gazprom in Russia are also big parts of the problem. I don't have any brilliant suggestions about what we can do with them, except that if we 
move as fast as possible to alternative energy, we can deprive them of their markets. And it would be much better if they would voluntarily reduce their production. But if they won't, then we have to do what we can. The EU is going to have order adjustments for products that are made in a carbon intensive way. For the actual fossil fuels itself, that probably wouldn't work, although that would be a possibility that would amount to imposing carbon taxes, which lots of people have been advocating for a long time. Yeah, I'm all for carbon taxes. The difficulty with the carbon taxes is that at what level of where, who you're taxing, the consumers who are buying those goods, the producers of, becomes a little bit tricky. I know that we're able to see where the emissions are taking place, which is great with satellites and, and all these things. But are we actually taxing the full cost of it? Then the people or corporations buying carbon credits, are they sometimes getting rewarded for behaviors that they should be doing anyway, mm. just for um, existential reasons? Yeah, that's also another part of the trickery. A lot of the carbon credits are for promises that are not being kept. You're told we're planting so many thousand acres of trees. That doesn't always happen. Sometimes it happens, but then no one guards the trees. So they're logged or there's a forest fire and they burn down and so on. So we need to be hard-headed about this and look very hard at what people are actually doing Carbon credits could be a good thing, but they would need to be carefully regulated and we would need institutions to police them and be sure people are actually doing what they say they're doing. And meanwhile, we should concentrate on reducing emissions because in theory, the carbon credits would get you to the same place, but only if what they promise is actually delivered and it very often isn't. There's a very recent study saying that something like 90% of promised carbon offsets are not actually being implemented. I don't know if it's that bad, but there's a lot of hanky-panky going on. Or trees that are being planted and they're counted several times. Right. And on the other side of it, and I hadn't realized you're going in because it's a complicated issue, and we wanted to save the rainforests in different continents, but some indigenous people saying, we have to have a livelihood. Now you're just treating our forests, we'll just be like the world's forest, and we also have to live as well. So they're just another form of colonialization. That's been another critique to make sure that they're fairly compensated for being the lungs of the planet. That's right. We need to find a way that will preserve the forest, but enable the people who live there to have worthwhile lives and lives that they would choose to have. So we shouldn't treat them like they're objects in our museum of nature. Though It does turn out that indigenous people are by far the best at preserving forests. One allows them to live in accord with their own culture. They will take care of the forests and guard them. But we need to work with them cooperatively and not impose our schemes on them. The philosophy is one of not being above nature. And there's always been, within many of the indigenous communities, who are very good stewards of the planet and living within substance. It's for the generations. They have to have something else to pass yeah. on and soil health and so many things. We're just remembering all the things that we have forgotten over the years with that intergenerational knowledge. Something that you've identified is that public policy is often determined by this economistic thinking. How can we transform that so that it really encompasses 
all aspects, not just putting value on nature as though nature is unlimited. It renews itself, but we only have one planet and we are acting now. Last year's Earth Overshoot Day was defined as July 28th and it's getting earlier Mm. and earlier each year. So how do we transform our thinking not to be just about the economy? Well, one of the proposals is to assign economic value to nature, but that's just to play the same old game and just try to bring the nature into the game. I don't have any sort of new ideas about this. Young people need to encounter nature to actually get out into it and see it and feel it and smell it, sense it. And one thing philosophers can do and are trying to do is to argue that value is not just value to humans which would be a kind of instrumental value. You know, you want to save a plant because you can make tamoxifen out of it and tamoxifen will help prevent cancer, which of course is a good thing. But also say species and other elements of nature have value in themselves and their value doesn't consist solely of what they can do for us. So that's two things. One is to make the point that not all value is value for humans, but things can have value in themselves. But the other is to try to find ways that especially young people actually experience nature. And a lot of people now really despair at the percentage of their time young people spend on their phones. I mean, near where I live, there's some beautiful meadows and they're in between one settlement and the main town. And I see lots of young people walking through the meadows, but they don't see the meadows because they're looking at their phone the whole time and talking on the phone. And so they're not actually having an experience of nature, which is right there for them to have. How you'd bring it about that they'll do this, I don't know. I mean, you can't probably pass laws against uh, spending time on your phone. But with very young children anyway, parents could actually impose a time limit and insist that their children get out and do something else besides exchange superficial ideas over the phone. I think that there are some great initiatives, and we've done interviews with small and large farmers, and my husband grew up on a farm, so I know a little bit about it from visiting farms. You write about the phenomenology of agency, and because we get the food and it's plastic wrapping, we don't have this sense of in what we eat. We don't have this sense of where it comes from, and I think that having greater involvement with farms, if you ask a farmer, they know that their livelihood depends on the climate, whether If you have a bad summer, you don't survive. You could lose your farm. And we have to be reminded of that. Could you go into this phenomenology of agency and how we can become more aware of the near effects of our acts? Right. Well, what you're referring to is an article by a philosopher who pointed out that we tend to think that the most important effects of what we do are the immediate ones and the ones that flow from what we ourselves do. So it's our own individual immediate effects. But what something like climate change shows very clearly is that those are not the most important effects of our actions. The most important effects can be very distant. The passage I was reading in the beginning was partly to make that point that it's not just the immediate effects of what I do, but in some cases, effects over centuries. And the other point, which was not in that particular passage, is another thing that matters very much is not just what one does individually, but the kind of social institutions and social practices that one is part of. And of course, that's where something like 
farming comes in? Are you part of a kind of industrial approach to farming where you just pour on the fertilizer and in a way pound away at nature? Or do you try to work with nature and regenerate the soil and try to add nutrients in a natural way that's cooperative with it? So the effects of one's life that matter are not simply the kind of short-term effects of one's individual actions, but the more collective and general effects on things like what kind of institutions we have. I mean, a lot of people now are worrying about their own carbon footprint, and that's good. We should all try to reduce our own carbon footprints. But it's even more important to change society's practices, something like, I mean, this now seems obvious, but something like getting away from cars that burn fossil fuels to cars that use electricity, provided the electricity that doesn't come from fossil fuels. And changing what kind of cars we drive is a big change in a social institution. Of course, just using cars less would also be good, but that's tied in with the structure of our societies, the fact that we have suburbs and people have to drive to get to work and so on. That I mean, it would be good if that could also be changed, but that's a more long-run change that'll take a while. So these issues are very deeply ingrained in society, and it seems very clear that you know many environmental issues are largely being controlled by the 1%. So it seems that the public has very little control of our planet. So how do you think that ideas like fossil fuel elimination and alternative energy will be and is being received by the public? Hmm. Well, it very much depends on which part of the public. And one of the most hopeful things, I think, is the activism among young people, people like Greta Thunberg. That's what gives me the most hope is that there is one segment of society, namely the youngest people who are fired up and who do see the problem and do want to do something about it. I think it's really accurate to say that the battle to get a grip on climate change is also the battle for democracy. Our politics are now heavily influenced, if not literally controlled, by vested interests, and these include fossil fuel interests. So the clear evidence of this is that the richest governments in the world are still subsidizing the extraction of fossil fuels. I mean, the United States, the UK have tax breaks and other subsidies for fossil fuel. So that's a climate problem, but it's also a democratic problem because it means that the politics are not being run for the benefit of the general public. They're being run for the benefit of some relatively small number of vested interests. So we need things like youth movements on climate change for the sake of the climate and for the sake of getting our politics back under democratic control. Earlier in your career, you made a distinction between basic rights and all other rights. And I was just wondering, how does this connect to our relationship with the planet? What are we owed and what do we owe to the planet? Mm. Well, I think what's objectionable about climate change from the human point of view is that it does lead to violations of the most basic rights. A burning coal puts particulate matter into the air, which causes lung disease and heart disease. So we'd have to do this thoroughly. Of course, we have to talk about which are the basic rights. But I mean, one of them is the integrity of one's own body and safety against assault on one's body. And I 
think it's fair to say that in many ways, coal burning is an assault on people's bodies because it injects into their air substances that will harm their bodies. And of course, all forest fires, floods, and so on kill people. So another aspect of one's basic security is not to encounter human-caused events that are threatening to one's life. So doing something about climate change, I think, can be justified in terms of eliminating violations of basic rights. After I had done the work on basic rights, I thought I wouldn't just keep forever talking about basic rights. So when I started working on climate, I switched to the vocabulary of justice and fairness, which I think is also important. But I think one can make a philosophical argument for climate change either in terms of justice, that it's not fair for some people to enjoy luxuries, which then inflict climate change on other people who are not enjoying the luxuries. That's a problem of fairness or justice. But it's also true that we should stop getting our energy in ways that's harmful to people's bodies and, in fact, kills people through floods and fires and so on. Yes, and I think it's really clear that link between planetary health and human health, and not just the 8 million estimated deaths a year due to air pollution, which is disproportionate in developing nations, but also in Western countries, dietary diseases that are caused by our agriculture and cancers, diseases of inflammation now outnumber other diseases that used to be famine related or due to insufficient nutrition, and that's soil degradation. So that's because Coming very clear. I don't even know how to tally that. Well, one thing you're pointing out is there are ethical reasons to limit climate change, but it's also in our interest. And certainly, if you don't define your interest as just literally yourself, but your children and grandchildren and further generations along the line, it's clearly in, in their interest. So this is one case where you don't have to choose between doing the right thing and doing the thing that's in your interest. Sometimes to do the right thing, one has to sacrifice, but this is not one of those cases. That's so true. What would your advice be to the youth who are fighting for sustainable practices and societies, but are dealing with a lot of almost feelings of disjustice, feeling like they've been put in a world where it seems like cancer is eminent, their societies are clouded with pollution? What's your advice to them? Well, I think a lot of young people are angry and ought to be angry. I mean, they're angry at people like me, you know, old white men who've been running the world for a long time and we haven't dealt with this and they should be angry. There's some really difficult tactical questions. You probably know here in the UK, there's an organization called Extinction Rebellion. And for a while, they were doing things like blocking highways and blocking subways during the commuting hour for people going to work. This seems to have backfired. So they've now announced that they're going to stop that at least for a while. They're going to stop these disruptive activities and concentrate on a march on Parliament in London in April. And what they're saying is we want to get the majority of people working with us. We don't want to just make them angry. I mean, one of the real mistakes they made, for example, was one of the subways that they obstructed, subway trains, was one coming from a minority poor area. And these were non-white people trying to get to work. And people pointed out 
that there are plenty of people responsible for damage to the climate, but these are not the people. So don't give them a hard time. So sorry, this is trying to say too many different things at once here. The problem is really serious, and I think people are right to be angry. And I think energetic, robust action should be taken. But people need to think hard about whether it's going to be politically productive. I'm not sure. I mean, I grew up in the segregated South of the United States at the time of the freedom rides and the lunch counter sit-ins and so on. And that's a case where to get their rights, people really did, quote, cause trouble. And I think climate is obviously very important. And if, quote, causing trouble would get the right kind of political action, I think it would be justified. I just I'm not sure it will actually get the political action that we want. And I'm afraid that, especially where there's already polarization, it'll just make the people who are already hostile more hostile. So I'm not sure. It's really tricky. So I think, you know, people need to be robust in their actions and they need to make real demands that things change. But if possible, do it in a way that will bring people to their side and not only make people angry, although you may need to make some people angry. Certainly the civil rights movement made some people angry who who should have been made angry. Creative Process founder Mia Funk and I had the opportunity to speak with Henry Hsu on climate issues. In this interview, Henry Hsu confirms so much of what we already know about the climate. We have a right to be angry. Some of the most powerful and wealthy governments and actors are contributing deeply to this climate crisis. Although an important reminder that our planet is not being treated how it should be, what I love about this interview is Professor Shu's deep belief in the mobilization of youth in this effort. Individuals like Greta Thunberg, Naomi Morris, these are people fighting for causes that powerful actors are finally starting to listen to. As a young advocate for sustainable policy in the United States, I feel heard, and more importantly, I'm energized by Shu's genuine belief in the younger generations to fight against climate change. At the same time as we need to shout to be heard, we also need to show that we're listening and the hardship that everyone goes through. You talk about in America, there being so much polarization from the wealthier cities or those in rural communities. I'd love to hear more about your youth and how you saw some of these conflicts playing out. Identity politics, definitely. It's important for some issues, but it's kind of also getting in the way of progress on climate change because we're forgetting that we're all humans living on a fragile planet and we have so much in common. Then we have to mitigate climate change and preserve biodiversity and not get so separated into our tribes. Right. And these tactical questions are hard, and they're not anything I have any special wisdom about. There are all kinds of changes that it would be good to make to the world. We can't make them all at the same time, though. And so I think we we need to focus where one can. I think it's fine to appeal to people's own interest and rather than tell them what they're doing is unfair and wrong point out that what they're doing is not really in their interest and certainly not in the interest of their children. Good politics appeals to people's interests where it can, and that way you can build coalitions with people who are not primarily worried about what you're primarily worried about. I mean, I grew up in Virginia. I live in England now, and they were going to build a gas pipeline actually right through the county that I grew up in. So I joined this movement to block the pipeline. 
And in fact, we did succeed. This was the Atlantic Coast Pipeline that's now been abandoned. And I did it mainly because the pipeline was going to carry fracked gas to be burned. And I was worried about the climate. But a lot of the people who were part of the movement were farmers who didn't want a big pipeline and all the trenches that would be involved dug across their farms because there was going to be miles and miles of digging done in order to bury this pipeline. So a lot of those people just weren't thinking about the climate at all. But we succeeded because we all wanted to stop the pipeline, although we had very different motives. So that's an example of how you can build a coalition, which that in politics, I think you have to do because you're going to have to work with some people who don't have the same priorities you have. On the other hand, now we know that one of the ways to act against climate change is to electrify many more things, cars and in particular, and to get the electricity, wind and solar. But handling a lot more electricity is going to mean expanding power grids. And that's going to mean building more poles, big, high velocity transmission lines. And some of the same people who don't want to trench for a gas pipeline across their farm also don't want towers holding high voltage power lines across their farm. But I think we're going to need the power lines. So that may be a case where we can't have a coalition with the same people that we've had a coalition with before. So I'm not sure I'm making any terribly deep point here, just that sometimes you'll be able to work with other people, sometimes you won't. Where you can't work with them, it's better if you don't make them angry at you and don't use tactics that completely alienate them. Although sometimes you have to do things that get people's attention. It is tricky and we need different people doing different things. The more extreme people make the other people look moderate because they're not doing the same things the extreme people are. Oh, definitely. It's wonderful to see that kind of exponential growth in terms of the technologies. And there has been criticisms at some stage of all the renewable energy technologies being too expensive, or whatever, or wind farms, because bird populations would decrease. And now we see that there's streamlined wind farms that don't destroy the bird population. So it's just wonderful to see this intelligent design. Another issue on which you've been active and influential is on nuclear. Could you just tell us a little bit about that? Oh, huh. Okay. I actually mentioned earlier that the reason I think we're the pivotal generation on climate change is not that it's the most important problem, but that it's a problem that really must be dealt with right now. My candidate for the other most important problem would indeed be the danger of nuclear weapons and the threats that have been made by Mr. Putin over Ukraine, of course, have reminded us about nuclear deterrence. So maybe we're not quite as inattentive to it as we have been. But until recently, and until Putin started threatening to use nuclear weapons, I think we had become very complacent. This is a long story, but as you say, I have done some work on this too. Basically, we survived the Cold War mostly by luck. A lot of people have concluded, well, we had deterrence and deterrence worked, but it's really not that simple. And there are so many ways things can go wrong. I mean, there were a lot of cases where something happened, like a flight of geese was mistaken for a flight of planes, or in one case, a bear climbed up a radar pole and the radar 
seemed to be showing objects which really weren't there because the bear was just shaking the pole and so on. I mean, there are large numbers of incidents during the Cuban Missile Crisis, for example. Planes were shot down that neither Kennedy nor Khrushchev wanted shot down. They had given an order not to do this. John F. Kennedy later remarked, there's always some guy who doesn't get the memo. And he had said, don't do something. In that case, it was he told U-2 pilots not to enter the territory of the Soviet Union, but a U-2 pilot went ahead and went into the Soviet territory. And of course, the Soviets were very edgy and seeing an American plane coming into their territory alarmed them. And that could really have escalated. So the point I'm making is we got through the Cold War without actually killing each other. But I don't think that what this shows is that nuclear deterrence works. I think it mostly shows that we were very lucky about a lot of things and we shouldn't keep relying on our luck. And so we need to get back to reducing nuclear arms. We're at the moment a long way from that, unfortunately, though maybe we've learned the lesson that you can't actually use the nuclear weapons. We'll see. With the current state of war in Ukraine, what do you think we should expect the development of nuclear weapons to go? Because I think that there's a lot of uncertainty right now. So your view as an ethics and international affairs professor, I'd just love to hear your point on that. Well, unfortunately, one of the trends now is to build smaller nuclear weapons, uh, so-called usable nuclear weapons. The argument for it is that if you threaten to destroy entire cities, that's not really very credible because the other side knows perfectly well that if you destroy one of their cities, they can destroy one of your cities. And so it's crazy to do it. So people are saying, well, that means our nuclear weapons have lost their credibility because they're not really usable. So what we need is to get some that are usable. So that would be much smaller ones that wouldn't do nearly as much damage and so wouldn't tempt the other side to retaliate in an equally destructive way. The trouble is that more usable nuclear weapons are more usable. They're more credible. People might use them. And if you're trying to engage in deterrence, you want them to be more credible, but they're also more likely to get used. So I don't think this is a good move, but both the U.S. and Russia, at least, are developing these smaller weapons. I mean, if Putin decided to use a nuclear weapon, I don't think he would just, you know, destroy London or Berlin or Paris. I think he would use one of these smaller weapons, maybe on the battlefield in Ukraine. So if you have the small ones, it makes it more likely you might use them, but then that makes it more likely that you break the uh, taboo and tempt the retaliation in kind. My impression is that there would not be a retaliation in kind. There would be a very severe retaliation, but it wouldn't be nuclear. And of course, that could hold off escalation, which would be a good thing. But best of all, just not to get involved with using the nuclear weapons at all. And over the long run, the way not to get involved with using them is not to have them. I think we really need to 
eliminate them. I keep talking about the United States and Russia or the Soviet Union, but there's a study of a nuclear exchange between Pakistan and India and what the climatic effects of that would be. And it would produce what the scientists call a nuclear winter. That is, you get enough soot and other junk in the air, even from an exchange of the size that India and Pakistan could have, that it would seriously disrupt agriculture in the Northern Hemisphere. So we shouldn't forget the U.S. and Russia, but we also shouldn't forget everybody else who has nuclear weapons, including Pakistan and India and China, because any sizable exchange has really major atmospheric effects for a relatively short time, a year or two. But as Mia was saying about the agriculture, you don't need agriculture to fail for 20 years. You, if it just fails for one year, a lot of people may well starve. And a small nuclear exchange will give you enough of a nuclear winter that agriculture will fail for at least one year in major sections of the world. And that's, that would be a very serious business. Yes. And we definitely have to sue for peace and diplomatic solutions. We spoke to Jeffrey Sachs near the beginning of this war in, in Ukraine. He's been outspoken, but not given as much airtime because thinking nuanced about the situation in Ukraine, and you mentioned, of course, it's been 60 years since the Cuban Missile Crisis. And it seems like, yes, we got through that by the skin of our teeth and luckily but that we can't we can't guarantee that we'll be lucky and i tend to think that we can't this illusion that we can have this unipolar world where it's possible to dominate the whole planet is not sustainable i mean we see the brick countries rising and we understand that america is only just a bit over 5% of the world population nato is i'm not sure 12% you know it doesn't make sense to dominate the planet when we have these rising nations with larger populations. So I think we do need to think about that situation in a more nuanced way, because I think that other nations expect to have security as well, and maybe buffer zones like a Crimea. And if we can achieve that through diplomacy, neutral negotiating nations, that's something we have to push for, not to dominate the planet with this idea of a unipolar world. Yeah, that's a lot. I don't actually agree with Jeffrey about all of this, but it's a pretty long story. It might be okay to have buffer zones, though. I don't think they should be seized by force like Crimea so was and, and eastern Ukraine is now. That's not because I think there should be a unipolar world with the U.S. running everything, but because I don't think even unfortunate arrangements should be changed by force. So this is actually another very complicated matter. I think maybe it's more like that some promises that were made to Russia and weren't exactly enforced. And so I can understand. I think if the same promises were made to America, they would already be doing that. I don't think that it's right to go in. I think it wasn't done smartly. And I think on the other side, you know, the idea as well that there could be like neocon remapping of everything is also a bit of hubris. Yeah, well, I'm certainly not for neocon. Uh, remapping of everything. But I think, and I've actually been doing some reading lately about this question of whether NATO promised not to go one inch farther east. I think it's unclear whether that promise was really made, though I do think some things NATO has done has been provocative and shouldn't have been done. However, I don't think that justified actually using military 
force. So I think I think both sides have behaved pretty badly in this case. Well, even when one side behaves provocatively, I think the other side is then justified in making some kind of response, but not the response of a military invasion. So even if you think NATO was quite provocative, I still don't think a military invasion is justified. But this is another very complicated topic. There's a, a very good book called Not One Inch by Sirot, S-A-R-O-T-T-E, Sirot, which is a study of this question of who made which promises about the expansion of NATO. And I've only spoken to some experts on it, but I can't claim to be expert on it. But I do think that it is natural for a country like Russia to at least have some buffer zones, whether they were promises or they were explicit or implicit. And even as recently as a few years ago, it just kept on being moved or changed. And we've seen, anyway, it's a long story, but mm. I feel like uh. you can't humiliate people into completely giving up anything mm. In their self-interest. We've been seeing a little bit about it and it doesn't work. Something else, can, the tipping point, right? Yeah. I think you have to talk to the so-called buffer zones about what they want. And a lot of people don't want to be the buffer zone. I think Ukraine never wanted to be caught between the East and West, the majority in Ukraine. So they're the major powers and they might like to have buffer zones, but then, you know, Finland wasn't particularly happy with Finlandization they were going to be a buffer zone, which they didn't actually enjoy being. So they've changed their mind about that. It's important. Okay. I feel lucky we've been made it through the last year with everything, but um, yeah, it's, we can't just bet on our luck. I, we've been feeling but, it a little bit more here. You know, I'm in Paris. Well, you're, in, you're also in the UK. It's like, you know, yeah. we have energy. Right. We're actually quite close to the war. It makes it different when you're in America and yeah. you don't have that it's more existential so yeah yeah you can get in a car and drive to poland yeah um, again i spoke to the head of the european commission's dg of energy she's been for years been dealing with the energy in, in russia specifically and in uh, the ukraine and trying to secure it and all so we discussed some of these things and you know the complex dance so i feel lucky i feel hopeful but uh, we're not through it yet definitely not right right Yep, we'll see. Well, all these are ongoing battles. Well, the only, the silver lining we can say, I hope we haven't forgotten, but it's made everyone, at least at the beginning, more serious, you know, about climate change and alternative energy. And then they kind of like, wherever we get our energy, I don't care. But so I didn't like that. But at least hmm. it's kind of made us focus. We yeah. can't rely on that. I think over the long run, this may lead to Europe's making the transition more quickly. I realize. You know, right now we're burning more coal than we were before. People are also getting uh, quite serious about getting alternatives. And uh, I worry that we're going to get sort of locked into liquefied natural gas. But one really good thing is that these terminals that Germany's building anyway are, are on ships. And so one of the problems about climate change, as I'm sure you know, is you build some very expensive facility for which you borrow millions and millions of dollars, and then you have to use it for 40 years till you've paid back your loan. But these ships and liquefied natural gas reception facilities are like that, but these are being built on ships. And so there's no reason why once the crisis in Europe is over, these ships couldn't go to Malaysia or Indonesia or someplace. And so we're not locking Europe into the liquefied 
natural gas insofar as the terminals are on ships. So that's a really important thing, I think. So I worry a little less. I mean, gas is a fossil fuel too, so it's not a good thing that we're burning more gas, but I don't think we're getting locked in for the long term in this case, which is good. It is good. Well, we all have to get more serious because I don't want to be hearing about COP50. We should have talked it all out. Anyway, thank God that we do at least have these conferences, whether some of it's window dressing or not. And so as you reflect on education and the challenges that we face, the kind of future we're leaving for the next generation, who are some important teachers for you? And what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? Well, I did my graduate work at two different universities. I did a master's at one university, and then I went to another university to do the PhD. And when I was at the first university, it was thought of as one of the world-leading places in philosophy. And I learned to use the methods that were dominant there. When I went to the second university, the first seminar that I took was a critique of the methods that I had learned at the first university. And this made a big impression on me because I had left the one where I did the master's thinking, okay, I know how to do this now. I'm getting good at this. But then I learned actually there are problems with this way of doing things too. So what I learned from all this is not that no method works and nothing is worthwhile, but just that however good the methods of analysis one has at any given time, they're not going to be perfect. And so one needs to keep some humility and keep an open mind and keep on learning and not assume that you're on top of things. So one lesson I would draw for education is we really do need to teach people to think critically and not just try to pump them full of the beliefs that we think are right. And I do worry about the extent to which some topics are put sort of out of bounds at universities. We don't want to allow hate behavior, but I think we also need to maintain free speech and enable people to think critically. And this is another of these tricky matters, but I think that's another balance we need to try to keep. Yeah. And then also to maintain impartiality, I suppose, while you're teaching it, to leave it open for the discussions. It's definitely important not to have fixed ideas. And so our intelligence is adaptive. As you say, we're in this pivotal generation and we need to adapt to the changes. You know, you often can't be neutral, but I think what a university should do is see that reasonable representatives of alternative views are able to come and debate. So I would say rather than aiming at neutrality, aim at vigorous discussion of a wide range of views, though there'll be some extreme views that you won't allow. But I think there's a little bit of a danger now of admitting only too narrow a range of views. If people think that there isn't climate change and that there's nothing to be done, they should be able to say so. Although, of course, I think that's a crazy view myself. Of course, we have to open our eyes. We can't live in a dream world. So thank you, Henry Shu, for opening our eyes, for sharing your philosophical Hmm. insights, active hope, and message of environmental justice. We have the solutions we need to create real social and political action to redefine our future. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast. My pleasure. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. 
This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Inshara Lee with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this episode was Inshara Ali. Digital media coordinator was Sam Myers. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be a part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.